Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is Season 4, Episode 15. And thank goodness spring is actually here for good. (laughs) Oh, it's been so pleasant here. We're actually in a... I feel like we're heading for a drought, honestly. We've had some rain sprinkling around here um, on the radar, but none around this area. And after extremely wet winter, I'm okay with some dryness for a while. Um, My front yard finally drained. I'm not sogging wet in the flower gardens. And we even had turned off our, our sprinkler system because it had been so wet. But now I feel like we actually really need to put it back on. I've been manually turning it on every couple days and letting it run through the cycles. And um, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at right now in spring. I don't know if you guys are still buried under snow because you're still up north or if you're in Florida or Southern California, if you're heading into what's going to be like summer this time of year, or maybe you're somewhere else in the world that's completely different kind of uh, climate right now. Um, I hope, I hope whatever it is that you're enjoying it. Today's guest is monarch butterfly and pollinator advocate Monica Mackley. Monica is author of the informational website Texas Butterfly Ranch, an invaluable resource for pollinator news and updates, particularly for Texans, but often with updates that others outside the state will find interesting. Monica's passion for butterflies, particularly the monarch butterfly, began after she noticed monarchs roosting on her property along the Lana River in the Texas Hill Country. From there, she dove into the research about monarchs and pollinators, starting her website and dipping her toes into various pollinator-associated activities. Monica is also the person behind San Antonio's 300 for 300 program, a goal to create 300 pollinator habitats for the 300th anniversary of San Antonio's formation, in addition to the annual Monarch Butterfly and Pollinator Festival that takes place yearly in San Antonio. We talk about all of this and more in the episode. You can find me at thegardenpathpodcast.com as well as show notes for this episode. And you can email me at thegardenpathpodcast at gmail.com and find me on Instagram at thegardenpathpodcast. Thankfully, it's beginning to be a lot more interesting around my yard. So I'm posting a lot more relevant photos uh, from the garden on Instagram these days. I had been digging into my archives for a while because it was kind of bland around here. So a little more active right there. Also, if you haven't listened to my last episode, I mentioned that the podcast is now on Spotify. So so if Spotify is where you listen to a lot of music and podcasts, it seems to be that they are accepting a lot more podcasts these days, and including mine. So now you can find me there. But as always, I'm on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and on the website. And I always appreciate a rating and review if you've got the time. All right, and on to the episode. Well, I guess I should ask, have you, have you been seeing monarchs come by yet or uh, how is it going? I haven't seen monarchs. As a matter of fact, I just wrote about that yesterday that uh, we've been hearing that the monarchs had left early uh, from the roosting sites. And, you know, we had the biggest uh, aggregation of monarch butterflies in 12 years down there. Um, 144% increase, I think, over last year. So that was really good news. And everybody said it was sort of a, a uh, perfect storm of great conditions with the climate and the weather and everything just kind of synced up perfectly. So that was wonderful. And then I've uh, been following all of the citizen science applications, uh, Dirty North and Correo Real, which is the Mexican citizen science organization. You can kind of track them, you know, they're in Tamaulipas, they're in Guanajuato, whatever. And so we just started to see them here in San Antonio. Like I had one friend who saw one about two or three weeks ago, and that was really like, oh, kind of early. And then we had cold snap, and that usually stops them in their tracks. And so it's had this sort of schizophrenic weather. But they're starting to show up. Yesterday, I saw about two dozen along our river walks. So that was really great news. And we're having really nice weather here at spring break and the sun's shining. So it all looks good. Yeah, yeah. I had two in my garden on Sunday and I'm just was actually while I was waiting for you, waiting look at the uh the Dplex uh, email list and people are saying they're seeing them in Fort Worth and Dallas. So I'm I'm kind of amazed. Yeah. <laughs> so um I guess if we get started, uh maybe if you want to tell everybody who you are and maybe a little bit about your background. Um from what I understand, you have a journalism background, but how did you get involved in the environment and nature and, and monarchs? Well, I do have a journalism background. My professional career was spent exclusively in media and marketing. And um, in about 2010, I left my corporate job and was I had, I had become a master gardener because I've always been uh, kind of a nature nerd and grew up gardening and grew up 
you know, going down to the creek and chasing critters and going out to the farm. My parents had a little plot out outside Dallas, Texas, and we'd go up there and build fences and go fishing. And my father was a fisherman and outdoors and taught me a lot. So I kind of grew up with that and I tried to instill that in my children. And then I think in like 2004, 2005, I became a master gardener and I kind of got really into that. And one of the things that happened to me as a master gardener was, you know, you need to do 30 hours of community service. And just at that same time, I was I was starting to learn about the monarch butterfly migration and my job at work changed a lot to uh, having to manage new media that was just starting to happen, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and had to start a company blog. And so I think, you know, I'm going to start a, I'm going to just start a, a blog as an experiment, you know, so I can experiment for my professional life. And I'm going to do that. Um, and then I can apply those lessons to my work. And meanwhile, I can pursue my interest, this new interest in monarch butterflies. And I started reading about it and writing about it. And the next thing you know, I was, I was doing the Texas Butterfly Ranch website, which has turned into kind of a destination and has spawned a couple of different initiatives that have been pretty successful, including our uh, annual Monarch Butterfly and Pollinator Festival and also a citywide um, monarch, uh, citywide pollinator garden initiative that we launched last year in honor of San Antonio's 300th birthday. So it's been kind of a slow evolution. I've, I've been seduced by this insect and, you know, once you get in, it kind of like opens doors to other interesting things you now like I, I do mock night and just do all these kind of fun things that just interest me uh, inherently it's, it's something i just do as a passion play and um, i really find it gratifying and you know people seem to like it as well so it works right right yeah i find once you start noticing and 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 seeing the natural world and actually identifying things that you're, you're coming across, you just kind of become more absorbed into all of it and you want more and more and more, and then you want to share it with everybody. And that kind of seems like how it went for you. Like you, you, you came across these monarchs roosting on your pecan trees and here you are. I don't know. I, I consider you probably a, a really good resource for, for Texas uh, monarch and just natural history uh, goings on. Uh, so I'm always keeping up to date with what you're doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and you're right about it. It's funny. I thought a lot about it because we have a ranch on the Lana River, and that's where I first discovered the monarch. I, you know, I, I didn't know the owner of the property for a couple of years before I noticed that monarchs were roosting in the countries, and it was just like such a wake-up call that, you know, they've been here all this time, but I had, you know, I just didn't pay attention. And so then, when you, like you said, when you start to pay attention, it gets more and more interesting. And the other thing that I found really uh, kind of uh, curious and, and amazing is my husband is a um, he likes rocks and, and, and artifacts and where we live where our place is on the Lano uh, is Cherokee air uh, command oh, sorry not Cherokee Comanche wait a minute Comanche yes and uh, so we find arrowheads and you know lithic tools all the time and so when he's walking around he's always looking down on the ground looking for things that he can see and I'm always looking up and around. And then we bring birders out and I'm, I'm looking, you know, at the bushes and, and, you know, the shrub level. And then I, we bring birders out and they're looking in the trees. So, you know, the big lesson is kind of like you find what you're looking for. You know, I'm not going to find artifacts because I'm looking in the bushes and you know, <laughs> butterflies are looking on the ground trying to find arrowheads. So I think that's a real lesson for all of us about, look, you're going to find what you're looking for. Right, right. No, I'm definitely trying to, I'm a plant person primarily, but I've, branched out into butterflies and moths and that sort of thing as well. Um, but it, I, I'm trying to be more well-rounded to learn about the birds, learn about the other insects and the other little organisms, but it's kind of hard because you really find your niche and you want to learn and be, learn all about it and know the, know everything. So. Yeah. You do, you do get seduced and you, know, you start to go down these trails where, you know, like for example, in the case of butterflies, you started as monarch butterflies, and then suddenly you're starting to notice the swallowtails. And in Texas, you know, we have swallowtails a lot of, a lot of the year, like probably nine months of the year, where you've been seeing a ton of swallowtails lately. And, uh, yeah, they have a completely different life cycle. And not life cycle, but their, you know, their chrysalis is really different, and their caterpillars are really different, and their eggs are really different, and their host plant is different. And so then you start looking at that, and you get sucked into them. And the next thing you know, you're, you know, you're looking at border patch butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> those in the house and keep them on the kitchen counter. So it's all, you know, just fun and interesting, I think. And I think the more, as you said, the more that we can engage ourselves with that natural world, the better off we're all going to be just, you know, for your mental health, for the planet, for sustainability, for future generations. It's all very important on a certain level. And I think, you know, we're losing that to a great extent with all the screen time that we're spending. Right, right. So after you noticed 
these monarchs roosting on your property uh, near the Lana River. Um, did you have to do anything to increase uh, habitat for pollinators or was it that your, your land was already in pretty good condition? Well, we're really lucky to live on a river because in the fall you'll find the monarchs along the river, along the river systems, because that's where any kind of nectar plant, you know, if we have a hot summer, like we did, I mean, last year was pretty crazy with the, with the rains we had in September, October. And it was, it was odd because it was supposed to be a pretty, it was a great year, but where we are, I think I tagged six monarchs last year, uh, apart from our festival, we tagged a couple hundred. And usually I tag, you know, three, 400 uh, monarchs at our ranch because we'll go out there every weekend. But last year, October was just like, you know, uh, constant rain. We had a big, huge flood, you know, the river rose 40 feet, washed out everything, the trees, the decks, the kayaks were all gone. It was just like this wow uh, landscape. Um, the the riparian area where we are is pretty is pretty much intact, I think. And I've actually had some ecological restoration that's come out that are friends and they go, wow, I'm just so impressed that all your goldenrod's still here. Goldenrod is like a rock star, man. I don't know. A lot of people don't like goldenrod because it can be invasive, but we have goldenrod on our riverbank. And in the fall, that is a prime um, nectar plant and also frostweed, which is another really amazing plant that grows along the river. And so that that uh, goldenrod really has those rhizome roots, and that just apparently really held the river in place where you know, all the stuff got washed out and also other different uh, plants that I can't name off the top of my head. But we, we have tried to do, uh, you know, we have swamp milkweed growing in the wild out there. Uh, we have a lot of these, I call them the Chigger Islands, or these little, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, collections of sediment that over the years have built up to form these little islands. And, you know, we, I go kayaking around there and they're perfect for swamp milkweed because I guess, the, you know, the seeds plant, the seeds blow down, they, they find a spot, it gets wet, and they put out those great purple, uh, great, great pink blooms in August and September and the perfect spot for monarchs to lay their last, lay, lay a last generation of eggs before they hit south. So we see a lot of that. Um, but we have in recent years tried to be proactive about uh, restoring more native grasses and pioneer plants and plants that will hold the river in place. And I have a really good friend, Dr. Kelly Lyons at Trinity University, who's a, a grass expert. And so she'll come out and she'll, you need to do eastern gamma grass here. And she'll tell me what to do. I try to follow her directions and, you know, slowly but surely we're trying to, you know, keep it solid and, you know, deal with these extreme events where you get, you know, a 40 foot surge in water that's just amazing and terrifying and dramatic. And you just know who's in charge and it's not us. Yeah. No, I, I, that day that flood was happening, I was watching all the videos coming in. I was just kind of totally astounded. And uh, we happened to go to uh, the South Lana River State Park over in Junction and, uh, in November. And I saw how far it damaged that state park. I was just, it was completely awe-inspiring and terrifying <laughs> to yes. think of that. We need to respect uh, mother nature. And like, we're, we're still finding all kinds of crazy as the, you know, as the floodwaters have receded. And now we're, it seemed like, you know, I'm glad we got a little bit of rain this week, but it seems like we're going into a dry spell here kind of in the spring. It's like, Oh my God, here we go. And what's crazy is that I remember last year, um, I just started beekeeping and I, and I took a beehive out to the ranch uh, on the, you know, at the recommendation of a friend who's a professional beekeeper. And I said, well, I inherited a beehive from a, another friend who moved to New Orleans. And I didn't, I was kind of planning to get into beekeeping down the road. I wasn't planning to do it last year, but it sort of fell on my lap. And my friend said, hey, you know, I've got this hive. You want it? You can have it. I'll give you the gear. I'll give you the hive and the food and the smoker. I'm like, okay, cool. So. I kind of got thrown into the beekeeping business. I asked my friend Rick Fink and he came over and looked at it, said we should split the hive. And I said, well, where should I take it? Should I, you think I should have it at my house in downtown or should we take it out to the ranch? Because you know, I have a great pollinator garden here. It's like, if I were you, I'd take it to the ranch. So we took it out there and it did great in like, you know, May, June. And then at the, by the end of July, it, we didn't have any rain like in June and July. And it was yeah. dramatic. And I was like, oh boy, here we go again. It's going to be the drought of 2011 because that's what it started to feel like. And one of the hives, you know, collapsed and had, you know, wax moths. And um, and I got really, like, upset. And, and I was like, okay, what was I thinking? I should have just kept it in my house. Because I have a <laughs> condominium complex here for, for pollinators. I mean, I've got stuff growing all the time. I hand water. I, you know, I really take care of things. And I thought it was a ridiculous idea that I took it out there. But then within two weeks, we had that huge rain event that just went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. So... You know, I think the lesson is you just need to be ready. 
and you need to be resilient because you, know, you don't know what's going to happen. It could be super dry and hot for a couple months and you're going to have 30 feet of rain. And, you know, you, it's a very important lesson for all of us, I think, to just be ready and plan accordingly. Right. No, I think it's just, it, Texas is so drastic and, um, you know, you, we can go from these cycles, like you said, where we're totally wet for months on end and then just nothing for months and you just, there's never any happy in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had some good years that were very, you know, sort of predictable seasons that, you know, okay, this starts at this moment, you know, the button, but we always have uh, at the ranch, we always get this, what Chip Taylor, Dr. Chip Taylor from Monarch Watch, he calls the pre-migration migration. You get these early arrivals around, um, Labor Day or Memorial Day, I can never remember which one's in September, the three-day holiday that kind of kicks off the school year, and we always get monarchs that weekend. And and so we kind of count on that. And and so you know you start to kind of plan your your outings accordingly, but you know, you just need to be ready for a wrench to be thrown. I felt so cheated last year that we yeah. had magnificent migration and we didn't really get to here in our part of the world because of all the rain we had. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking forward to actually tagging Monarchs last year and we had, I think we tagged three. Yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> and the year before I, I had raised a ton of them and I was just expecting the same thing and nope, didn't happen. Yeah. So um, I want to talk about your, the Texas Butterfly Ranch website, um, how you kind of consolidate all the information you come across um, and, and how you decide what you're going to put on the website. And then maybe just talk a, bit, a little bit about what um, has been like the most popular hits uh, and reads on the, on the website over the years. Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, it, it's the, the website has evolved and it's kind of like, it continues to be my sort of outlet and passion play. I'm actually writing a book um, based on some of the things on the Texas Butterfly Ranch website, but also just sort of based on my experience of being seduced by monarch butterflies. I'm hoping to get that published in the next year. Awesome. Um, it's called, I'm calling it the Monarch Butterfly Chronicle, so we'll see how. <laughs> but um, I've been very fortunate to be able to probably meet all, most, if not all, of the major scientists just because of the, our location here. You know, Dr. Lincoln Brower came down and tagged monarchs with Dr. Chip Taylor's been down here. Karen Overhauser's been down here. We've had scientists from Canada and Mexico come down because of the festival that we started. So I feel like I'm in a, a really fortunate position to meet these, these folks that, you know, sort of influence policy and science and studies. So that's really advantageous. And so when I, you know, my, my basis for choosing to write is like, what do I think is interesting is basically that, like, what's interesting, what's timely, what's going on. So for example, I just wrote about here they come, you know, the monarchs are on their way. This is the state of the situation at this moment, but of course everything can change. Um, you know, seasonal stories about like, I'll probably write soon, next time, I'll write something about planting your pollinator garden for the spring because everybody's asking about that. But one of the, I think it's really interesting, the most read posts on the Texas Butterfly Ranch, one of them is uh, how to raise monarch butterflies at home. Because uh, they get so many questions, you know, people will send me a Facebook message, oh, you know, I found this, Fourth in-star caterpillar, you know, and, it, and here it is September in New York City. What should I do? And you know, so people have a lot of questions, and you can kind of gauge public interest based on the questions and the comments that you're getting. And obviously, you can base interest on you know the stats. You know, you can watch stats on your site about who's reading what and what the most popular uh, blog posts are. So that's one determining factor. But honestly, the how-to content has been very popular, and I have to say that I feel like I need to update that that how to uh, raise monarch butterflies at home post because I feel like that whole um, endeavor has gotten a little twisted thanks to social media and, and I've written about that as well where you know uh, you see people who are raising hundreds and hundreds of monarch butterflies as if it's some contest and yeah that's really can get very dangerous and it's not necessarily a good thing or you know you'll get a, a question from somebody about you know that this is their you know 212th butterfly and it seems like all the ones lately are emerging from the crystals is all crumpled and you know it's not able to fly it's like well maybe that means that you're raising really non-healthy butterflies and you need to like clean up your act or stop doing it and so there's a lot of issues like that that get complicated you know when, when everybody sort of piles on and joins the party in terms of raising uh, you know creatures in their home in a situation where they don't necessarily do their homework or keep a clean house right right well on that topic I mean there was a big kind of controversy last fall when the Xerxes, the, excuse me, 
<laughs> the Xerxes Society and Monarch Joint Venture kind of put out a guideline suggesting people not raise them at home. And a lot of people are quite upset about that. I mean, do you have an opinion on that? Or, or maybe you want to expound upon that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a really great thing to to do it at home, I, like raise a couple of butterflies at home, you know, witness the life cycle. But but what's what you see on on you know on some social media sites is people, you know, doing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of um, you know caterpillars, chrysalises, butterflies, and raising them and releasing them in a way that's not necessarily a healthy um, process for for producing a lot of uh, butterflies and. I know a little bit about it. I mean, uh, when I left my corporate career in 2011, I thought I was going to become a professional butterfly breeder. And I joined the International Butterfly Breeders Association. I, got, I served on their board for a while. And I know all of these folks that are commercial breeders. And I took all these courses on how to raise butterflies. And it's really hard to raise lots of butterflies that are healthy and clean. Yeah. And just and this is one of the things that, you know, Karen Oberhauser and Modern Joint Venture and a lot of the folks say is like, you know, and it makes huge sense that when you have a lot of creatures of any kind, like think of a public restroom, for example, and all of the creatures are going to the same place to do their bodily functions and their natural processes, eating, drinking, sleeping, you know, excreting waste. You know, there's going to be germs and weird stuff that happens when you have that many creatures in the same location doing the same thing over and over and over and over. And it's just inevitable. And unless you're meticulous about keeping that clean, and for example, commercial breeders, you know, they use a ton of bleach and they bleach everything. Every time they touch it, they bleach it. And that was one of the things that turned me off about it when I learned about it. I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to yeah. like, you know, be, I'm not a systematic person like that where you, you do the same thing the exact same way every single day of your life. To me, that's boring. I respect people that do that. And, you know, we need that. We need predictability. We need systematic processes. But that's not me. And so once I kind of figured that out, that that's what it would take to be a successful butterfly breeder. I was like, no, I think I'm just going to stick in the marketing part of this and be an evangelist and I can do more good that way. And so that was my decision. Um, but you, know, you see a lot of these photos and I get them, I get people sending me photos and they've got, you know, like 60 or 70 caterpillars on a milkweed plant or, you know, 50 crystals that's hanging in a, in a tent. And you're like, wow, you know, I hope they're really paying attention to what they're doing because, you know, when you talk to commercial breeders and they, you know, they change their latex gloves every time they enter the, the White House or the or the rearing cage. And, you know, they, they buy this, these special products that are more, you know, potent than bleach. And, or they buy, you know, thousands of, hundreds of gallons of bleach per year to take care of this stuff and wiping it down. And they have, you know, special processes and protocols for avoiding that. And, you know, even doing what they do, they recognize that there will be a day when butterflies will get sick and you've got to, you know, you've got to deal with it. And that means starting from scratch, you know, and getting rid of it. And one of the interesting things that I found so interesting, I mean, it was just so interesting to witness this particular social media conversation. Um, a friend of mine named David Berman, and I wrote about this on my website. Uh, David Berman is a, a entomology PhD a candidate, I think at Oklahoma, I can never remember, Oklahoma State University or University of Oklahoma, so forgive me. But, um, he, he's been coming out to our ranch doing a milkweed survey, and I've gotten to know him over the years. He's a wonderful young scientist, and he's very approachable. He's very explanatory. You know, he's not, um, you know, impatient with people. He's very, you know, he's really sweet and wonderful to talk to, an incredible resource, great scientist. So he was telling, he was pointing out to me that, you know, when scientists like him get on these social media pages and, and give advice about, you know, people encountering problems, they look really neat to, probably put that butterfly out of its misery, you know, put them in the freezer. People get really upset and they react yeah. and they're like, that's not, you know, I don't care if, you know, I've heard if it, if it can still fly, you can let it go. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, pollute the gene pool, go for it. But that's not what we're here for. Or that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And then you get into this, you know, discussion of are we doing more harm than good? And I think that's a legitimate question. I don't think the answer to that is to tell people they can't raise any butterflies, but I do think people need to be responsible and, you know, you don't, it's not a contest. Like, he raised the most butterflies this year. He has more chrysalis than the next guy. And, we, <laughs> we, you know, and that's social media. That's the nature of social media, too, which is unfortunate but real. And, like, so many things, it's a double-edged sword of, you know, sharing really good information but also creating this sort of dynamic of, you know, people validating themselves through memes that don't necessarily mean much. Right, right. 
No, I thought it was a very interesting conversation too. I guess in my head, I didn't actually have a good grasp on how many people are personally raising uh, monarch caterpillars. I mean, I know a lot of you know schools will do it for fun, and you know, obviously the home home gardeners and that sort of thing. But it's when I saw it come out, it made it seem like there's all these people doing it. But I wondered readily, really, what the scale was and how much. Well, it's hard. It's hard to tell, and, and you know. It's hard. It's hard to pinpoint it, but but it is. You know, it's just kind of. I hate to use the word offensive, but it is a little bit offensive on a certain level because, you know, the magic and the wonder and the education and the engagement that can occur when you raise a creature from egg to adult is impossible to replicate. I mean, that is really special. And once somebody does that, I mean, they basically never look at it the same way again. And that's really powerful. And that's what gets people to change the way they behave. And you know, the decisions they make that affect the planet. But, you know, do we need to take it to an extreme of like having people raising hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of butterflies? You know, that's a very legitimate question that, you know, is very hard to answer. And, you know, that's why I, I, I think it's interesting how people, you know, certain scientists are against commercial breeding because they think, you know, it's wrong and it's ill-advised, but it's like these people are professionals. I mean, they know what they're doing and they might run into a, a situation with a disease or, or, you know, OE or something, but they can't continue to be in business if they do that. And so they're going to take every precaution to avoid that. And so you start to wonder, is there a role for commercial butterfly breeding here? Because maybe they could do something because they know what they're doing and they're not, you know, generally releasing. I mean, certainly I'm, I'm sure it's happened where an OE infected butterfly has been released into the universe from a commercial breeder or a wedding or something. And that's been criticized and critiqued and talked about at infinitum, but you know, we have hundreds and thousands of people raising butterflies at home, and it's like, well, what is that doing? And if you're going to make that case, then how do you, how do you decide for the two? Right, right. Anyway, it was a, it was a good conversation, a lot of food for thought, and um, I really, yeah, wanted your opinion on that. And I, I didn't know that you had tried to uh, become a commercial breeder, so that's kind of interesting. <laughs> well, it was a very short-lived. Um, it was a short-lived escapade. I think I had one gig. I had one gig that went great but it was so stressful to me because i overinformed myself about what could happen it was it's a long story but you'll have to read it in the book so it's in there awesome well i'm looking forward i hope that gets published yeah, um i kind of on a similar talk on a similar topic is uh tropical milkweed because you know it's creating uh the disease oe and 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 causing that to to uh proliferate in the butterflies and I think that might be even more of a, well, controversial topic, but also more of a problem if we're talking about just how many landscapes uh, that aren't even the home garden, because I see tropical milkweed all over different, you know, landscapes of businesses that don't get cut back every winter. And I, I think that's probably more of a potential issue for spreading, uh, you know, bad disease into the gene pool than it is for home gardeners to, to raising monarchs. Um, you know, talk a little bit about that maybe for people with who aren't familiar with OE and tropical milkweed. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 that's such a contentious topic. Uh, and you know, I live in a part of the world that probably could be defined as subtropical a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, I, I find this whole, I mean, it's true. There's some science that suggests that repeated visits by monarch butterflies to the same plants where they drop these spores. I mean, OE is a spore-driven disease where that is carried on butterflies. And when they go to a plant, they can drop the spores onto the plant. And to get infected by OE, the caterpillar, a caterpillar has to consume the OE spores and get it in their body. If it, if it just falls on them and they don't eat it, then it doesn't affect them. And so you know, tropical milkweed has been pinpointed as this, you know, this vilified plant because it's the most available, it's the easiest to grow, it's commercial, it's affordable, it reproduces easily, it's beautiful. I mean, it's got everything. Yeah. And, and it's the it's the plant that nurseries have, you know, chosen for whatever reason over time to put out into the public. And I mean, I, I don't like the fact that it's been vilified the way, the way it has, because I also, I wonder, for example, swamp milkweed, which is another milkweed plant that's pretty easy to grow and the one that we have on the Atlanta River and has a pink flower. 
I mean, if, if nurseries had decided to grow swamp milkweed and it became available widely, would, would we be saying, would we have this conversation about swamp milkweed? I think we would. I think it's not about the actual species of the milkweed. It's about the availability and the fact that the plant can endure through, you know, multiple seasons. And so the, the negatives on tropical milkweed, according to some studies, is that, for example, in my part of the world, my tropical milkweed did not die back this year unless unless I cut it down to the ground, it was still, the same stems would be there in the spring. Right. So the idea is that monarch butterflies are looking for a host plant, they're going to go to the milkweed, and the only milkweed available is tropical milkweed, so they're going to go to that. And so over time, like we were talking about earlier, more and more of these creatures go to the same plants over and over, and it creates an unhealthy situation, you know, conceivably where OE spores are left on the plant, another butterfly comes along, lays an egg, that egg hatches, it starts to eat, it's shelled and it starts eating the, the leaf. And then one thing, the next thing you know, he's, he's eaten an, an OE spore and that uh, caterpillar will then develop OE. Um, but, but another thing to consider is that, you know, OE is pretty much present, is my understanding, in most, in the vast majority of monarch butterflies, kind of like the streptococcus viruses in, in human beings. And one of the things that makes it bad is when the health of the insect or in the case of a human being for streptococcus if your health is compromised then you're going to have a worse case of it and so monarch larva monitoring project has started a citizen science program where you can monitor your butterflies you can actually test them for OE by you take the butterfly and they have a special little strip of tape and you roll the tape over their abdomen you put the tape on a piece of paper and you put the date and the time and the sex of the butterfly and you mail that in and they let you know how many spores were on your monarch butterfly caterpillar. So the idea is that the, the I, I believe, you know, and again, I'm not a scientist. I, I know something about this, but I'm sure I'm going to speak at certain points, but I'll do my best. Um, the idea is that if you have a milkweed patch and butterflies repeatedly go to it, you're going to have a buildup of OE spores. And since most of those milkweed patches in any kind of garden or, you know, urban situation are going to be, Tropical milkweed, the consensus has been, um, you know, developed that we need to be careful about tropical milkweed. And you know, Monarch Joint Venture just says, look, if you can, and we all agree, if we could get native milkweed, we would plant them. But they're not widely available. They're also very persnickety to grow. And they're, they're, they're hard. They're hard to grow. They're hard to maintain. It may be different in different parts of the country, like maybe common milkweed in Wisconsin is easy to grow in your yard. But... Down here, it's pretty difficult. We have these yeah. ridiculous summers where it just burns everything to a crisp. But guess what? Tropical milkweed doesn't burn up. It's tropical. It comes from curacao, probably. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. And then, you know, the other thing I think that's, that's sort of overlooked, and Dr. Jeffrey Glassberg from the National Butterfly Association has also written about this, and I agree with him, is that tropical milkweed can serve as what he called a life buoy. It can serve as a way station where for example, right now we have monarch butterflies moving through San Antonio. There is no milkweed here except for tropical milkweed. If that tropical milkweed wasn't here, they would continue to fly north, hopefully finding some milkweed. But the further north they go, they're probably not going to find any milkweed either because it's further north. And so they might die before they can lay eggs. So, you know, the, the tropical milkweed, I believe, serves a certain purpose in these circumstances where you have a lack of milkweed overall and you, you can manage it in a way that's as healthy as possible by cutting it down in the fall and making sure that it, that it's cut to the ground. The idea of cutting it down is that if you cut it down, then any spores left on that plant won't be available to monarch butterflies that land on the new growth. So that's the whole point of that. So, and it's Chip Taylor said, you know, just cut the dang stuff down. You know, it's not, he thinks it's a trivial issue. So again, the science is mixed on this and scientists don't agree on this. And the practical reality is that, train has left the station. Tropical milkweed is out there. We're all growing it. It's an incredible plant. I mean, it has everything you want in a plant. And, you know, it's also, I've had certain scientists tell me that tropical milkweed is the milkweed on which monarch butterflies evolved coming from Mexico because it moved north as the butterflies moved north. So, and then when you get into native plants, I mean, it's technically not native here in San Antonio, but what does that mean anyway with the climate change and the way it is? I mean, our grow zones have been reassigned. So it's right. complicated. There's no simple answers there. And, you know, people are going to just have to make their own decisions about it. But I know in my garden, I've got tropical milkweed. I cut it down in the fall and like it's the first thing to spread up in the spring. And I've got monarchs on my uh, tropical milkweed right now, probably. Yeah. 
that's that's exactly my theory is the same thing. And I, you know, I never cut my back until I learned about OE. And so I've been trying to do that, um, you know, try to be the best steward as I can and go with what the science comes out with every year. But like you said, I've, I've read the same differing kind of viewpoints and I don't hate tropical milkweed. I love it just because it's like you said, it's hard to find any other milkweed. And I, we have uh, uh, the green milkweed, green antelope porns around our neighborhood, but um, you know, I haven't really had any established luck establishing it in my own garden yet, but I'm trying. So, yeah, I, I mean, I've spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on antelope horns, milkweed seed, and buy, you know, go to the native plant sales and buy the, te- I bought Texana milkweed, I bought Syriaca milkweed, I bought uh, milkweed, and I planted all these in my yard and at the ranch, and like they just don't seem to make it because they are very persnickety. I mean, they're meant to grow in a certain specific set of circumstances under a specific set of conditions that we can't easily replicate. And so, you know, we've, I've tried and, you know, I'm waiting for some magic, you know, formula or trick that I don't know, but I mean, I would prefer to have the Texana milkweed is actually, was actually not that hard to grow. And I have not noticed if it came back this year, I, it may not. I mean, I'm working in the yard yesterday. I had three or four of those plants. They have really pretty white flowers, but it seems to me we had a big freeze this year. Uh, we had a couple of freezes in, our, in the front yard. I didn't have any in my backyard, but I don't know if it's going to come back or not. And, and I'd also like to just mention that if you're going to grow, one way to deal with the tropical milkweed thing is it's so easy to grow that, I mean, and the plant gets kind of ugly after a couple of seasons anyway, like the third year of a, of a single tropical milkweed is kind of the the stalks are kind of brownish, you know, the flowers aren't as pretty, the leaves are kind of rusty colored. I mean, it might make more sense just to plant new plants every year or two. And then you're guaranteed that those that's clean milkweed. And, you know, they put out so many seeds that you just throw them down or like put them in a potting soil four by four and you're going to have a plant in no time. And um, then, you know, it's a fresh plant. So, or, you know, go to the nursery and buy one that's already a year old or so. I think yeah. that's the other issue with milkweed is it takes a year or two to grow a plant that anybody will buy. Because everybody goes in there and want a big fat flowering plant with the flowers on it, like you see what it looks like. And for nurseries to make money at that, I mean, I think it's probably challenging. Right, right. Um, another topic I want to talk about a little bit is because I only know a smidgen about it would be the endangered species uh, protection of the monarch butterfly. Do you know what the status is of that and like what would, how would that affect like just everybody, everyday people interacting with the butterfly? Well, my understanding is that they're supposed to uh, have a decision on whether or not the uh, monarch will be listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act by June of this year. And honestly, I just do not see that happening under Trump administration. So I mean, there's a lot of people talking about it and getting a little whipped up about it, but I just, you know, I just can't imagine that's going to happen uh, given everything else that's been going on and given the trajectory of that department and a lack of leadership there. Um, but if it were to happen, um, my understanding is that I have to go look this up uh, to get the details, but, you know, one of the issues with, with uh, endangered species is that whatever the host, in this case, the host plant milkweed, you're not able to do anything with that. You can't cut it down. You can't, you're not supposed to touch it. You're not supposed to harvest it. And so that would really create kind of a, an interesting situation about milkweed. And and then I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to look this up while we're talking. Um, you're only allowed to raise, I believe, 10 butterflies. And there's been a movement uh, with with different organizations to raise that to 100. And even Lincoln Brower apparently wrote a letter uh, last year before he passed away saying that, you know, he wanted to change that recommendation from, you know, anybody can, anybody can raise up to 10 butterflies was, I believe, the original language. And then they were going to try to change that to 100. And I think it's because of what we talked about earlier, you know, that, you know, the more you raise, the more likely, you know, disease and, and you know, bad conditions will, um, you know, result. So, I, I don't see it happening. And, and I'm just looking at the post I wrote about it. So, if milkweed becomes part of the critical habitat as defined by the ESA, that would mean that destroying milkweed or getting caught destroying it would become a crime punishable by fines. And, you know, in our part of the world, ranchers, uh, cattle ranchers don't <laughs> like milkweed because it can be toxic to cows, so they go and tear it up, you know, and pull it out. And so then that means, you know, that's kind of, you know, really complicated because on the one hand, we're trying to promote monarch butterfly conservation by having your host plant available, but then you create a law that says, 
that encourages people to take it out because they don't want to get caught taking it out. So they'll take it out anyway. Right. Um, and, you know, people call that shoot, shovel and shut up, or, you know, the practice of killing and burying evidence of any plants or animals that might be threatened or in danger because you could get a hundred thousand dollar fine. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, ranchers in Texas already have problems with golden cheek warbler habitat and stuff like that. So I can't imagine that they're going to want to be protecting their milkweed and their pastures. So. Um, okay. Earlier you mentioned a couple other uh, festivals and pollinator programs, uh, the 300 by 300 pollinator gardens for San Antonio and your Monarch and pollinator festival. Mm -hmm. Um, can you elaborate on those a little bit and um, maybe like why you started those? Well, both of those initiatives, I mean, it got started because of the mayor's monarch pledge. And you know, just to kind of reroll the videotape a little bit, you know, we had the big drop in monarch numbers after the 2011 drought. And we had, you know, a huge decline in monarch butterflies. And then we had the three amigos, Los tres amigos, uh, the presidents of Mexico, Canada, and the United States got together and decided that we were going to, they were going to work together to save the monarch butterfly migration. So President Obama at the time came back and he um, called for a national pollinator strategy. And then a year later, he announced the national pollinator strategy. And the national pollinator strategy had several goals in it, including increasing pollinator habitat, uh, reducing colony collapse disorder in the bees, and uh, increasing the monarch butterfly uh, population to the historic average. So that unleashed this whole um, slew of initiatives that we're witnessing to this day of pollinator conservation, which is a great thing. And so that happened in 2015. So when that happened, the National Wildlife Federation um, started a campaign called the Mayor's Monarch Pledge, where they basically went to mayors along the I-35 corridor from Canada down to you know, the border, the Mexican border, and tried to get them to uh, make a pledge to increase pollinator habitat within their cities. This was actually a really smart move on their part. And so when we heard about this in San Antonio, um, me and uh, UTSA approached the mayor's office, along with the National Wildlife Federation, and said, hey, you know, we should do this. You know, this, this is something San Antonio right here in the Texas funnel, you know, in the perfect situation. We get monarchs every year. And so the National Wildlife Federation had 24 action items that uh, could be uh, that, you, that you could choose from to participate in the Mayor's Monarch Pledge. And to be a participant, you had to do three of those things. So any three things. It could be a city proclamation. It could be changing your mowing schedules to, like, allow wildflower seeds to set, to, to you know, drop before you, you chop them down and uh, ruin the, the pollinator habitat or, you know, do a seed exchange, all these different things. And they had this whole list. And to be... Uh, in the leadership circle, you had to do eight of these things. And so we presented all of this to the city and worked with Mayor Ivy Taylor back then and we're pushing to get it done. And we were waiting and waiting and we're like trying to find out why it was taking so long because it seemed like a really easy thing. I mean, look, there's only three things you got to do. And one of them is a proclamation to be home and that's the easiest. So uh, finally, they came back to us and said, well, we're going to do all 24 things on the list. And I was like, what? And the National Wildlife Federation was kind of taken aback and, you know, had to scramble around and, create a conference call to figure out what that would be called because they need a new category for that and ultimately decided to call it Monarch Champion City. So San Antonio became the first Monarch Champion City in the country uh, to embrace the National Wildlife Federation's Mayor's Monarch Pledge, all 24 items. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so we're really proud of that. It was a big, you know, we made a big deal out of it in San Antonio and we pat ourselves on the back and then of course then we looked at the list and I figured out what we had to do and one of the things on the list was to have a Monarch Festival. So we're like, hey, we need to have a monarch butterfly festival and so that is what kick-started the festival that we now do and this will be our fourth year um and then last year you know the, the national wildlife federation they do an audit where they come back you know once or twice a year and say okay how are you doing you pledged to do all these things where are you okay you still got to do this this and this and so one of the things that we had not yet done that we committed to do was to have a community-wide pollinator gardening initiative and so again i was kind of in on those meetings with the city of San Antonio and like, well, Monica, why don't you come up with an idea? You know, what can we do with this? And so we talked and we worked with a couple of people and last year was San Antonio's tricentennial. And so everybody's doing tricentennial events. And I, and I was like, well, maybe we could do 300 for 300, 300 pollinator gardens for San Antonio's 300th birthday. And so everybody thought that was a great idea. And then to make it more doable, 
we decided that uh, we have 10 city council districts in San Antonio. So we figured, let's try and do 30 gardens per city council district. 30 times 10 would be 300. That seems really reasonable. So that's what we started doing last March. And by the end of last year, I think we had 321 gardens, and I think we're about 350 now. So Awesome. Yeah, and it's been just a community-wide collaboration. I mean, we don't have pollinator police checking on the gardens, and we ask people to sign up. We have a map where we map the gardens. We can see you know, where they're concentrated and how many city council districts have how many, which city council districts have the most or how many. And, you know, we try to do that to sort of egg people on. Hey, district two, you know, district one's got 25 and you've only got five. What's up with that? And so you right. Can, <laughs> just sort of, you know, competition. And people really got into it. We're going to be following up here, starting to write about it again now that we're in planning season. And we're going to keep doing it. We'll, you know, keep encouraging people to plant pollinator gardens. And, we created signs for them. I think signs are really important when you do a pollinator garden. And uh, I've experienced this myself where I lived in a, a really nice neighborhood where everybody had a beautiful lawn. And I turned my front yard into a pollinator garden. And, you know, half the neighborhood loved it and half the neighborhood hated it. <laughs> they're like, man, you know, what happened? Did your, did your lawn guy quit or something? Your yard's so messy looking. It's like, actually, there's a method to the madness here. Let me tell you about it. So I think it can be really helpful to have a a sign in your front yard that says this is a pollinator garden you know and so i i commissioned a sign um and i, I was very deliberate about the sign needs to be attractive the sign needs to be something people are proud to have in their garden um you can't have a bunch of logos on it you can't you know it needs to be beautiful and kind of catchy and so we, we created a sign with our monarch butterfly icon on it and we, you know we sell that sign on my website and um I think we've sold about 200 signs now, and it's, uh, it's been pretty successful. But it does let the neighbors know. It communicates to the neighbors that, uh, you know, there's a reason that my yard looks like this, and I'm not just being messy. And right. I think that's all good. Right, right. No, I think I think signs, like you said, definitely are what bring, aware- bring awareness to what people are doing, whether it's, you know, the – the national, I think it's the National Wildlife Federation, where it's the backyard, um, the wildlife habitat mm-hmm. uh, signs. Um, it's conversation points and, you know, changing people's minds. It's usually showing people instead of uh, telling people what to do. <laughs> yeah. When you show them how to do it, they're going to be more likely to try to do the same thing. Yeah, I, I live in a, in a very urban setting, like literally right across the street from HEB headquarters in downtown San Antonio. I'm looking at out my window at the HEB arsenal right now. And I have a lot of foot traffic on my uh, street and I'm, my office is on the second floor looking down onto the street and I can actually see people walk by and they kind of look at my yard and they're kind of like, wow, looks, you know, it's very different. It's very, you know, wild and kind of, you know, they're beautiful flowers. There's always something going on from my point of view, but it is very different. And I think when we have the sign there explaining why that is, it, it just, resonates more and like we were very deliberate in the language on our sign we, our sign says you know this site provides butterflies bees and other pollinators with a safe place to rest refuel reproduce and raise their families and so i think when you cast it like that and people go okay fine you know that the spent seed heads are kind of brown and you know raggedy looking but you know i can put it up with with a month or two if i know that you know moths and birds and other and other creatures are going to benefit because they have a, you know a blanket for the winter well, do you have any upcoming uh, speaking engagements or any upcoming celebrations that you're going to be doing for the Monarch Butterfly this season? I don't, I don't think I have anything on the calendar. I just did a couple of things earlier this year. At the moment, I don't have anything on the calendar. I, I am, like I said, working on a book, but I'm trying to really put my head down and get finished. Uh, we will be having our Pollinator Festival, our Monarch Butterfly Pollinator Festival, October 18th to 20th here in San Antonio. So that's coming up, and that requires a lot of planning and meetings and all that good stuff. And so we're not uh, ready to announce any of the details, except that we have the dates. Um, and it will be, once again, a three-day festival of, um, you know, science, citizen science, education, and celebration. We try to have an art component. We always, always try to have, we started to have a culinary component. Last year, we had a really fun um, event where we did, it was called Holding the Skull Batman. And we had, um, uh, Bat Conservation International participated with us and did a bat presentation. And we had a, Mescal purveyor come and talk about how mescal is produced, which is, you know, close closely related to tequila and bats pollinate the agave that makes mescal possible. Hmm. And then we had an art show of migratory pollinators that our friends in Mexico sent to us. So 
that was really fun to sort of you know put those three things put those things together and, and have people join us for that and so i think there is a, a lot more interest in connecting you know insects and pollinators to the foods we eat and i think that's a very powerful way to educate people too and you know you, you let them know that you know that chocolate they eat every day well chocolate midge makes that possible thank you chocolate midge for making that <laughs> possible. or you know uh, i i didn't know until recently that tomatoes and peppers are pollinated by bumblebees they're not pollinated by honeybees they're pollinated by bumblebees because bumblebees have that big fuzzy body mass and they do this thing called buzz pollination where they shake their entire bodies to be able to shake the pollen off the male part of the plant to fall into the female part or i guess to fall into their back so they can take it to the next one but yeah it's just really again you know we're going down the the, the bunny uh, trail of getting seduced and you're learning more and more and the more that you learn the more interesting it gets because it all just seems to be so um, you know designed in some fashion right right well do you have any resources you'd like to share for people who would uh, like to get to know um, more about you um, and the Texas Butterfly Ranch but also about monarch butterflies well I mean for my website, the Texas Butterfly Ranch, uh, you can go to texasbutterflyranch.com. We have a resources page up there. And, you know, I write a couple of blog posts every month and try to stay on top of things that I think people are interested in. We have a festival tab up there. We have a tab for 300 for 300. Uh, we have a place you can buy our signs. But in general, I mean, I think for monarch butterfly conservation questions, Monarch Joint Venture is an incredible resource. Monarch Watch is an incredible resource. And, um, I mean, and Journey North is also an incredible resource. So there's there's so many resources, but Monarch Watch, Monarch Joint Venture, and Journey North are the three that sort of were like the triumvirate of you know of legitimacy, I think, in my view, anyway. But there's a lot of other great resources as well that you can just kind of explore on your own. And um, you know, Correo Real is the citizen science platform of Mexico that does what Journey North does in the United States. Correo Real does in Mexico and tracks the modern migration from the uh, Texas-Mexico border down to Michoacan and Journey North, you know, even though they overlap and, you know, their maps overlap, I mean, they kind of do that as a focus. So if you're interested in the Mexican part of the journey of the monarch, that's a good place to look as well. Awesome. Awesome. I didn't know about that. I'm going to check that out. That's cool. Yeah. And awesome. they do a, they do a weekly newsletter as well. And if you're, if you're on WhatsApp, uh, WhatsApp is like that um, international texting messaging platform. Mm-hmm. Journey North, I mean, Correo Real has a, a group there that you can really follow things really closely there. Okay. If you want, it's in Spanish, so you know, got to speak Spanish. But yeah, I know. And just sort of, oh, they're in, you know, in, uh, how right now or whatever. So, right, right. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, talk to me. And um, like I said, I've been watching your uh, website for several years now, and I always find it fascinating, and it, it's always educational. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me and have a fantastic day. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care.